Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, or IIJA, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, passed Congress and was enacted into law in December of 2021 to provide broadband access to the entire country through billions of dollars in grants to expand high-speed internet access. The IIJ sets forth $65 billion in federal investment funds as part of the $42.45 billion Broadband Equity Access and Development Program, or the BEAD program, to distribute grants and funds through the states and territories, along with $2 billion for tribal connectivity programs, plus $2.75 billion in digital equity, and $1 billion to enable middle-mile infrastructure plans. These programs are all part of the federal programs put in place to solve the digital divide challenge with high-speed, affordable, and reliable internet access. Or as Assistant Secretary of NTIA, Alan Davidson, recently said, these programs are this generation's infrastructure moment. My guest today is Professor Mark Jamison, or Dr. J, as we call him. Dr. J and I discuss the need for educating and training to meet the infrastructure build-out workforce challenges and how the states are working through the opportunities this funding brings through these multiple grant programs. Dr. Jay is the non-resident senior fellow at AEI and the director and Guttner professor of the Public Utility Research Center at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business. Dr. Jay served as a special advisor to the chair of the governor of Florida's Internet Task Force, and he served on the FCC transition team for President-elect Trump. This is Dr. Jay's second visit on Explain to Shane. During his last visit, we talked about legislation in Congress and the changes at the Federal Trade Commission around antitrust competition and the consumer welfare standard. Mark, or can I just call you Dr. J, because that's what we call you here at AEI? That's what some high school students called me a long time ago, and it has stuck ever since. I was just at an event with Dr. Jameson, and I said Dr. J, and they looked around. I was like, I mean, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome to Explain to Shane. You have been working very diligently around a bunch of new programs that have been put in place by both Congress and this administration around how we bridge the digital divide with broadband. So today, I would love the chance to walk through some of these really arcane topics for a lot of people, but things that are near and dear to our heart. The broadband equity access diversity, the BEAD program, as we like to call it, is is definitely top of mind. And the other one is the notice of funding opportunity, the NOFO. So let's, which should go first? <laughs> well, they belong together. Okay. Because the, the, the NOFO is simply notifying people that money is available. What's it available for? The BEAD program. So they, they go hand in hand. Okay. So if I take advantage of the NOFO, mm-hmm. then I have the opportunity to get BEAD funding. Yes, but you cannot do that. A state has to do it. So right. the, the Department of Commerce, NTIA being part of the Department of Commerce, will be sending money to states for states to implement the broadband program. Okay, so how much money did Congress just give the Department of Commerce Division of the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA? The number seems to keep going up. And that's when I realized, like, it seems like it was $42 billion, then it got to be $46 billion, and then it was 48 And then I, I wonder if people are just putting all these programs together because there are multiple programs that are going on here. The Middle Mile Program, I'm separating out the ones that are over at the Department of Agriculture. But I, so it's just, it's many, many billions. Many, many billions. Uh, 42.5 <laughs> is the amount that was allocated for this 
in the uh, infrastructure bill. Okay. Uh, but you're right. Uh, under COVID, a few other pro- programs went out and for middle mile and other types of things. And uh, that is something that uh, happens a lot in, in Washington, D.C., as we will have a lot of different programs all focused on the same issue. So if I am someone in my favorite, the great state of Nebraska, where I'm from, mm-hmm. but I'm not in a very urbanized area, so I'm probably outside of the Lincoln, Omaha, Grand Island, North Platte area. And I, I realize you have familiarity with this, too, because you at one point were a, a short-term resident in Nebraska. In North Platte, Nebraska, yes, for all of six months, I think. <laughs> a guy from Kansas. So explain the middle mile. Why, since that seems to be the first thing that is going to get funded, we just saw um, Assistant Secretary Alan Davidson talk, and he said that that is the one that is the most shovel-ready and, and probably the most important to the next level. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't know if it's shovel-ready or not. Uh, that That's a term that um, probably has been overused a little bit. <laughs> but this, essentially the idea of what we call middle mile is getting typically fiber optic cables out into a rural area so that people can then build from there into homes, into businesses, anchor institutions like schools, hospitals, et cetera. So it's getting getting the internet, the broadband into an area rather than getting it into the, the actual buildings that people will be working in or living in. So my friend Roger Entner likes to say it's, it's exiting off the superhighway onto the highway structure or maybe getting onto the county roads. Well, yes, you could think of it that way. It's, it's basically like, you know, the, the main highway. That, that would be the middle mile. Okay. So, that, it's, so it, it seems like that's a good idea from a sequencing perspective that they're plotting that out. But now do the states have to put that in as well? Or is that... How is, do we know how the programming for that's going? That is something I've not studied very much. I cannot tell you exactly okay. how that We're going to ask for us that. Works. We're going we're to come back to that on notes for later. So once, once the middle mile is going on, so these are going on in parallel time sequences is what you're saying. Yes. And, and I don't think there was a lot, there was a, a deliberate sequence to it. There wasn't an idea that said, we've got to build a middle mile, then we'll connect people. I mean, the idea of connecting people with broadband didn't actually, they weren't fully thinking about broadband when they did it. They were thinking about the outcome, which is actually not a bad thing. I don't mind yeah. it when policymakers think about outcome and then let technology do the middle work, which mm-hmm. is what it is a, probably a better way to do it. So you have been working with the state of Florida on the kind of initial work project that needed to get done so the governor can now put the information forward to NTIA. Tell us what the steps were going into that process. Well, what I was working on was something that Florida has in its statute which says that every two years, the state will write a broadband strategic plan. And the statute was put into place a year or two ago, so it was time to write the first one. Oh, so it was, it's a recent statute. It's a recent statute. And I've talked with the, the state many times about broadband, saying, you know, don't do this, do this. And they said, well, if you're so smart, you help write the strategic plan. Okay. So I did. And um, it's, we wrote... We finished that in about May, was the first of the end of our work as a research center. Now the, the people in the governor's office and economic development, et cetera, are putting the finishing touches on that, but that was not directed at the $42.5 billion. We didn't even know what that was going to look like, that we have, were just writing. You have your own statute. Like yes. 20 years from now, there'll be somebody going, whose idea was this? They're like, this guy in the University of Florida, <laughs> Dr. Jameson. But it is a good idea. Just, to, you know, it's always good to have a plan. Usually I'm a big, if you have a plan, it, it moves forward. So you gave the governor some guidance on, you know, how to f- move towards the future on broadband. And that just happened to coincide with the fact that then Congress decided to 
bring a lot of taxpayer money into the idea of getting broadband across America. So that's now being uh, part, it is being rolled into the plan that the governor's doing as far as you know? That I don't know. Once the governor's office, the leaders in the legislature and such got involved, it was time for the academic to step away. Ah, so I stepped out okay. and they're, they're doing their work now. And, and whether any of the work that my team and I did sees the light of day, I have no idea. All right. Well, let's hope that it, it's all going for a good cause. So let's just talk about how BEAD works then. So Congress has has allowed funding to go forward to the Department of Commerce. They have the congressional remit to, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. And now now each state puts a plan forward so they can augment their thought. They can take the rules that they have to use to agree to go to NTIA, but they can also augment it so it, it makes sense, for, fit for purpose, I guess, depending on what the state's needs are. So give us some idea how you think that's going, because it's coming up soon, right? July 18th? It's coming up soon. Well, I think July 18th is the uh, letter of intent. Oh, okay. It's just saying a, that they plan on taking so money yes, away from we, the government. We're, we want to do this kind of a thing. Then there's a back and forth with NTIA. Eventually, there is the state needs to submit a five-year plan, and that involves some more back and forth with NTIA. And then eventually, then NTIA says, okay, state, here's how much money we will allow you to use. And then it's in the state's hands to work with it. Although I suspect NTIA will stay involved. So I know there's a couple things that are are specifically requested. One is making sure that, well, there's the question of unserved versus underserved, but the idea of making sure that people that have not are not currently online can find, you know, a way to get online. And some of that is connectivity from what you we were talking about with the middle mm-hmm. mile. And some of it is just not understanding the programs and access. So there's programs for that. And now there's there's been new requirements put on for labor. I know there's some concerns about that from a, a cost perspective. And one of the things that came up several times at this event that you and I were just at is the workforce challenge. So are we ready to get a lot of people out there to start laying fiber all across America? Is, what's it going to take to make that happen? No, we're, we're not ready for that. And I don't know if there is such a thing as being ready for that because you're going to spend $42.5 billion doing something that people were not geared up to do. It's not like we have people who are experts in lane fiber optics or in doing any of the software work or the electronics work. It's not like they're sitting out there twiddling their thumbs saying, gee, I wish there was a program so I could could have a job. These are people who are all out there building houses, doing whatever else they're doing today. Diverting that work over to building broadband will take some, some effort. Definitely, we're seeing community colleges are going to have an interest in this. It's both an opportunity and a challenge, so it's going to be interesting to see how that goes going forward. And then the whole idea about, you know, high speed and affordable. So are we still, is, is 100, 100, are we, we realizing that might be aspirational? And they, are they still calling for numbers that say that you, you have to have this number to be able to apply? Yes, they, they still are. And that is actually in this, this statute, as I understand it. And that is... Fairly easily achievable. Most broadband networks being developed today provide that level of service. Not everyone buys it, but uh, they, they provide it. Oh, that's, that's an interesting, yeah, the, it's available, but some people just choose to go with a lower amount. There's, yes. So once we get broadband across America, what do you think will be the, the biggest change, the, the adoption that we'll see consumers want? Well, that'll be hard to say because one of the things that, that we've studied over the years and have struggled with is why is it that a lot of people don't seem to want broadband? Because we've had programs before where we just offered broadband for free and people still said, no thanks. 
And we've offered programs where we'll say, okay, so maybe you don't have a computer, so we'll, we'll throw in that. And they still say, no, thanks. And so we said, well, we'll offer you training. We'll give, we'll give you this stuff, and, and then we'll offer you training on how to use all of it. And they'll say, how much do I have to pay to not have to go to those classes? <laughs> to your, can you do it for me? Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting point. I don't know if we're at a stage now in society where it's becoming tougher and tougher not to have some digital skills. I imagine it is. I think that's true. I, I think of it as, if you go back to my grandparents' times, cars were kind of rare back then, and not a lot of people ever learned how to drive. But once we all built roads out to everybody's houses, then people learned how to do those things. I look at, at broadband as that same thing. Once it is there, people will figure out what it's good for for them, and their lives will be different because of it. And I don't know what that will look like. That's, it's, it's theirs to innovate with. If we stay with that analogy, that means that Web3 will be like a lot of our research assistants who don't have cars and aren't sure they know how to drive. That will be true. Because yes. they now have that, <laughs> that capability. So for somebody who spent a lot of time in this space and you're seeing the government going towards spending a lot of money in this area, what, what do you recommend? Is there a priority list that we should be looking at as the spend comes forward and how to layer this process forward for success? Well, the biggest challenge that I see is making sure that the money is spent well and the people are held accountable for the things that they do. So it was a big lesson for me back in, was it 2008, 2009, when we had one of the stimulus packages with the Great Recession, had almost $8 billion in it for broadband. And the money was all spent. And we have tried to do research now to say, what was the impact? And we cannot find that broadband expanded at all. What we did, we're able to find, is that the people who got the money were typically politically connected. Oh, interesting. And so there's equipment out there that is sitting doing nothing because it, it wasn't well thought through how to make sure that people who were experts were the ones, businesses that would actually know how to do broadband, were the ones who got the money. And it was part of their, their business. And then people just weren't held accountable if they didn't do the work. So there weren't measurements that were part of the, what they had to do to be part of the program? Well, there were measurements. After a while, people figured out that I don't actually have to report these actually, things. Yeah. Yeah. It was pass-fail. <laughs> well, even, even some of the government agencies quit publishing the data because it was, it was embarrassing how oh, little was happening. Yeah. I was talking to another policy colleague of ours this morning, actually, about why the FCC maps are such a mess and why people stop reporting. And he basically told me that there's no there's no downside for them to just stop telling the FCC how things are going. Yeah, the FCC doesn't have much of any kind of a penalty or has not had any kind of a penalty for people to not report their their broad. We had, for example, one company in Florida that provides broadband, wireless broadband, primarily for businesses. And about three or so years ago, they they could just quit sending in numbers, which you know, really, when our data analysis came about, really messed with our data because suddenly all this broadband disappeared. That's so interesting. I feel like, there, I don't know, I guess there's, I, I, I'm going to have to learn more about that because I don't understand why you wouldn't encourage them, or at least maybe you have a stick. Maybe there's something they don't get if they don't play with the other kids. Yeah, they didn't need anything from the FCC. That's, well, that's, their, that's their why they didn't care. License and yeah, right. that, that was about it. <laughs> um, and, and then there was, there was always the kind of uh, private business information issue. So if you're a broadband provider, do you really want all the other broadband providers to know exactly where your customers are? 
No, you really don't want that. So the FCC also uh, had a system in place for kind of hiding data so that you couldn't figure out exactly who was the broadband provider for a particular household. So it was need to know and they didn't think the FCC needed to know. Well, that's certainly true for some of the broadband providers. Right. I imagine there's some sort of emergency thing that says if you want somebody to come actually take care of you in the state of emergency, though, you would want to be found. Well, but that's a whole different system. Right. That's exactly. not a broadband Yeah, there's system. just no crossover there. That's interesting. So do you have a, a preference or thoughts on, I mean, fiber is really big. They, this mm-hmm. the plan says, fi- and fiber is great, but fiber is also expensive. And it's also talking about the wor- workforce situation. Um, it can be a challenge to get fiber everywhere. Fixed wireless, other opportunities. What do you what do you think about ways to connect these areas that are difficult? I mean, you have them in Florida. We have them all across the United States, especially out west. Well, I always like to leave that in the hands of the experts. Okay, so I like that. You're tech agnostic. Gonna, yeah, there are people who are going to be putting their money on the line to build systems. Now, the government's not going to fund the whole thing. Okay, so actually, let's let's break that apart because that's sure. a very good point. Is a lot of people think the government hands you money and then you just know what you're doing there, and there's no private equity that comes in. But a lot of times, there is a lot of additional equity partners in sure. here. So walk us through that. Okay. Well, the the way that I explain it to people is if the broadband is not in a particular place, it's because it's not commercially viable, or at least hasn't been, at the rate of which we can build systems. Because, you know, the faster you try to build something, the more expensive it gets. So at the rate we've been able to go, it just isn't commercially viable. The revenues are, are below the cost. And so the purpose of a subsidy then is to, you could say, augment the revenues if you want to, or you can say it pays for part of the cost just to get so what customers pay is higher than what a company has to put out from its own pocket. And then that makes it all viable. It sounds like some real basic economics going on some there. Very basic okay. economics. Well, which we've ignored in this, this country for a long time on, when it comes to broadband. And, I and won't many go, other things, right? I won't go into those horrible stories. So then the way I think about it is, well, the customers are the ones who know how how much broadband is probably worth to them. And if they've never had it before, they've got neighbors and such they can talk with or family they can talk with and kind of learn about, okay, yeah, this this is how much it's worth to me. And then the companies know how much it, the companies, the internet service providers know how much it costs to provide that service. They're the ones that are real experts on it. Sometimes that means that fiber optics is exactly the right solution. Sometimes it means that what we call wireless broadband is exactly the right solution. And these are just antennas that point at each other and, and send a broadband signal out to a rural area. We've got some of that in, in Florida because we have some places where there aren't very many people. And then there are also going to be places where it's pretty much going to be a satellite. We have a, I don't know how many, just a small number of communities in Florida that are part of, of the reservations for the Native Americans. And you're not going to get fiber optics out there. Right. You know, they're out in the swamps someplace. You're not going to be able to run a wireless system out there. It's, it's going to be satellite. That's, yeah. I mean, and that's also something we've all been watching for various reasons. Uh, I, I always like the situation back in um, Puerto Rico where all their wireless got knocked out. And at the time, Google had a loon over in Colombia. So they floated it over and did a, a um, triangulation with, I remember AT&T being involved. I'm not sure what other carriers are involved, but they lit up the island temporarily. And it just made me realize every once in a while when you just, you get in one of those stressed situations where you have to think outside of the norms, you actually come up with some really interesting ways to solve things. We definitely have seen that in the Ukraine too. I think, you know, Elon Musk sending over a bunch of Starlinks. Sure. We'll see what, you know, the, the Chinese definitely have paid attention to that. Yes, <laughs> Yeah, it's just pointed the satellites. We've done it for a long time in this country. So when Hurricane 
Katrina, Katrina? excuse me, yes, mm-hmm. went through uh, New Orleans. AT, well, it wasn't AT&T at the time. It's Bell South, as I recall. Just rolled in some portable cell towers and got service back up within a very short period of time. I don't remember how long, but it was, it was you would count it in, in you know, two or three days. Their, their emergency response is pretty amazing. Yes. All, all of those, those guys. What else are you working on? Anything else we should be hearing from you before we shut down this Explain to Shane? Oh, gosh. What am I not working on? We're working on competition in app, app markets. Okay. We are, are working on what's going on with antitrust, you know, the, and maybe it's really not antitrust, it's at least going after big companies, yes. um, working Consumer on some welfare. of that as yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, have been working on, on some interesting broadband research with a former postdoc of mine, trying to look at how broadband has affected entrepreneurs oh, interesting. In, the, in the U.S. And it, it's, the results so far are pretty interesting. So for would- the first... 10 years, first decade of of this century, found out that it really impacted entrepreneurs who were women or minorities, Mm -hmm. not so much the white white males. Then after 2010, that all kind of settled down. It still impacts impacts everyone just about the same now. And that's a curious finding. Yeah, I can imagine. I just had this visual in my head of there's been this, you know, woman who's been running a business for 10 years, her husband's off going to some office and all of a sudden he comes home and he goes, COVID hit. What have you been doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I've had this business for 10 years because I had the internet right here in our house. That's fascinating. And I know you and I are, are doing an event on Metaverse. So you're also looking oh, at some yes. of the applications around that as well. Yes. We have a, a small think tank working on, on trying to understand how this works. Because what, what we want to understand is primarily what's different in the economics of this versus where we've been in the past. And then also, what is this going to mean for public policy? What is it going to mean for people's lives? And there's a lot to be sorted out. So my thing about the metaverse, I felt this way about Second Life, too, is I just don't want my avatar to have a better closet than me. I mean, does she get an allowance? I, well, that, now that's, that's a good question because, you know, this all gets into those what we call NFTs. Uh-huh, the um, things I can buy, my virtual purchases. Yeah, and, and those have gotten to be very problematic in the past couple of months. Huh. We'll have they've, to keep they've gotten, an eye on that. Well, with the price of energy going up, it takes a lot of energy to produce those things. So, wow, your your supply uh, your chain meta- management in the virtual world too. Your metaverse closet just got really expensive. <laughs> now I have one more thing to worry about. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.